0: What's up and welcome to Clarity for Parents of Athletes, bringing you stories from professional athletes about their parents and how they were raised. My name is Gabe Nocer from aclearmind.com. Right, and Welcome to episode number 45. I hope you're doing well, staying healthy, staying in the present moment, sleeping well, hydrating, eating nutritious whole foods, exercising plentifully, and really, really taking time to keep your body and your spirit as healthy as possible. Now, this episode is with a legend of U.S. women's soccer. She, her name is Leslie Gallimore. And she was the head coach at the University of Washington for many, many years. Before that, she grew up in Southern California and grew up some around some amazing legends of the game. And she talks about that in this interview, some like really legends. I'm not talking about Messi and Ronaldo type legends. I'm talking about some really big legends of the game that she got to watch as a child in Southern California. And she went on to play college at Cal Berkeley and then started her head coaching career at San Diego State and then eventually moved up to what she considered at that time her dream job up at the University of Washington where she just recently retired and now picked up a new job as commissioner of the Girls Academy which is a brand new organization that started after the ending of the U.S. Development Academy on the girls side uh, just a few months back. So she talks about that. She talks about the landscape of recruiting and gives you tips on what to do without camps and without some tournaments going on, without showcases. How do you navigate that? So in the interview, Leslie gives you a lot of amazing tips and advice as a soccer parent specifically, and also gives us a look into her youth, her childhood, her family life, and what it was like growing up in Southern California during this time of watching legends. Now, as usual, I leave my takeaways at the end of the episode. So after I sign off with Leslie, just stay tuned for a couple more minutes and I tie in some of the biggest pieces that struck me the most from this interview. All right, enjoy. All right, Leslie, thanks so much for your time today. You're in the hotbed of COVID right now up in Seattle. What's your experience been like the last couple months?
1: Yeah, it's been interesting. Uh, You know, I I came back from the under 20 women's uh, CONCACAF qualifiers from Dominican Republic straight to Florida where I did an A license and it got cut short by about a half a day because people were panicked about getting out on flights and getting home. And it was pretty much a shut-in from (laughs) March through June and a then I, I did, I did take a flight down to see my mom for her 81st birthday at the beginning of June. And, but for the most part, I've been here, um, you know, COVID was one thing. And then I it kind of, you know, this was a hotbed originally. And then I thought our, our state did a pretty good job of controlling our numbers and people shut down pretty quickly. Um, the Black Lives Matter protests were also uh, huge here and still continue to be pretty huge and, and publicly mm-hmm. uh, touted. Um, and so that that's another, you know, kind of, spotlight that's been on Seattle. But it, it, in general, life here has been, um, you know, we, going about our business and, and behaving for the most part compared to some other things we're watching around the country. <laughs> so uh, it's a lot of time to reflect. Ah. And uh, my retirement, I tell people I felt a little bit gypped that I, I finished my 30 something years of college coaching and thought I was going to have all this time to travel the world. And uh, <laughs> that got put on lockdown and everybody else is just home like me. So everyone's on my same schedule.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it's probably been an adjustment because you're so busy coaching, and or you were at least at the college level, and then in other things as well with coaching, education, and mm-hmm. everything else that you had going on. It must be a totally foreign experience for you to be in one place for so long.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's been strange. This is uh, definitely the least amount i've I've flown or traveled uh, in <laughs> in my adult life. It's uh, it has been a little bit strange. You think my room yeah. and my, my room and my house would be cleaner and just up to speed? I, I, <laughs> I did hit it hard on the gardening early on, uh, but uh, that's also kind of started to wane. And now, uh, the, the computer screen and grading a license candidate assignments and uh, doing some different podcasts. And uh, now with this new job that I've taken on recently, I've uh, it started to ramp up again. So, oh, so much for leisure.
0: Yeah, well, I hope you enjoyed the slower pace at least for a little while and uh, that your garden looks nice. You know, I'm sure it's getting plenty of rain up there in Seattle as well. Yeah, Yeah. so, you know, I definitely want to get to your new job, your new role in soccer, but I want to go backward in time for a little bit and get to know you, the the young Leslie Gallimore. Mm -hmm. What was she like? Where'd she grow up? What was her family like? What did what sports did she play?
1: Uh huh. Yeah. Well, that's not a short story, but I will. Uh, I'll try to. <laughs> I'll try to. I'll try to summarize for you pretty quickly. I grew up in uh, Southern California in Redondo Beach, and I have three brothers: two older brothers and a younger brother. And uh, my parents split when I was fairly young, so I have a single mother who, to this day, still at eighty-one, works full-time in uh, hospital administration. She's a she's oh, a wow. she's a warrior. Yeah. Um. And so I kind of learned my work ethic from my mom. Um, We were really fortunate that my grandmother was able to take care of us while my mom worked. So I have a, you know, again, I tell people this all the time. I'm starting just now at my age to connect the dots on how I ended up being me. But um, I have had a lot of strong women in my life that have shown me just through their love and their care and their kindness and their their work ethic. just just sort of how to be and and that's sort of been the, the fabric of, of how I grew up um, the athletic side of me I will credit to fending off three brothers from fight <laughs> fights and while my mom was at work and maybe my grandma was busy doing laundry and dishes and cleaning up after us I don't know but um, i uh, I definitely can can credit my mom was a pretty good athlete actually but I can credit a lot of my uh, athletic ability just out of self-defense <laughs> trying to survive in a household with three boys and yeah um you know there were oftentimes i'd call my mom at work and say that, you know they're picking on me again they're coming after me and she'd say just pick up the, the largest thing you can find and just swing it at them until i can get home And I,
0: okay <laughs>
1: it's a sh- shock that i wasn't a tennis player or a baseball player I, I did a lot of swinging um but uh I I did uh I was able to um find the sport of soccer um not at at the youngest age of of you know how kids are now but um we just played a lot I went to the beach a lot I surfed a lot I you know swam a lot I we were just kind of outdoorsy kids and because we grew up in southern California the weather was nice enough year round to be able to do that uh threw a lot of balls rode bikes a lot skate skateboards all of it um but <laughs> the way i found soccer is that my mom was and again if you knew my mom this would really make you laugh is that she agreed to be a den mother for my two older brothers for boy scouts one year Mm -hmm. cub scouts Mm -hmm. and uh that lasted one 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 year of cub scouts and uh, i could tell that it wasn't really my mom's cup of tea being a (laughs) being a den mother for the boy Scouts. so when i was in third grade and i asked her if i could join the girl scouts or bluebirds or brownies or whatever it was Um, she said no (laughs) can't can't you find something else to do and I was like geez okay so um, there was a sign hanging up in in our area that said register for AYSO for soccer and it was right at the very very beginning um, in in southern California uh, when AYSO was just starting nationally and I was not on the first round of girls teams but I was on the pretty pretty close to the first round of girl teams in AYSO and it was a tremendous organization, so I signed up for AYSO and started playing soccer in the third, fourth grade. And um, you know, all you needed was a pair of cleats, and we managed to scrape up enough money for those. Didn't even have to have your own ball, and um, and that's that's how my soccer career got started. Uh, I I was really fortunate to grow up in an area, and I you know may he rest in peace. Ziggy Schmidt is a dear lifelong friend of mine, and Mm. you know when he became the Sounders coach, nobody was happier than I was. And he you know he was a mentor to me as a college coach when he was at UCLA and when he was in the national teams, and as a coaching educator, uh, he's just a a person that uh, literally and figuratively loomed very large in my life. And his dad, (laughs) his dad Fritz, and his brother Roland is my age. His dad Fritz. Um, had a lot to do with soccer in the South Bay, which is you know, Redondo Beach in the area in Torrance where we grew up. And uh, and so I was already um, in the 70s in a, in a very soccer-rich part of the country. The NSL was going strong. We had um, the LA Aztecs, and we saw the likes of Pele and George Best and, uh, oh, Joh- wow. and Johan Cruyff come through our town, and I was able to be a ball girl at those games. And Oh wow! A lot of those players ended up staying, you know, in the country after the league folded and became coaches themselves. And I worked camps with uh, the likes of Bobby McElinden and Brian Boswell was a British guy who ended up being my youth coach from the age of 13 through 19. I played on the same team for the same coach, and uh, and so I just, you know, I I was born into something very very fortunate when it came to soccer as a girl especially. And, um, and that's kind of where it all started for me. And it was, uh, it it just didn't end, you know, I was able to play at a a pretty high level as a youth player. Uh, College was never something I really thought about as far as soccer was concerned. And I ended up uh, just going to school near home at UC Irvine, where there was no soccer program, but I was young enough to play one more year on my club team. And I got recruited um, off my club team at night there, I was 17 at the time. Uh, but, I was a freshman in college, and I said, "Well, I'm already in school, and, and some of the schools, Santa Clara being one, and Cal Berkeley being the other, said, "Well, you could transfer. You know we do have a team or club sport, but we're getting varsity status, and we need uh, we need to get this thing off the ground." So I went to Cal with uh, five or six of my teammates from my youth club, and I was the club president my freshman year, and uh, the rest is a little bit history, but I enjoyed a a great playing career at Cal that turned into an accidental coaching career that turned into a life career. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, a year of law school was in there somewhere where I decided I didn't want to be a lawyer, that coaching and playing was more fun. And, uh, I was able to yeah, land a, a dream job at Washington in 1994. And, uh, that ended in December of 2019. And, uh, I'll, I'll write a book about it at some point because my journey, yeah. my journey has been, a. Uh, it's been a fun one and it's not over yet, but the college, the college career and and my playing career were certainly, uh, you know, I I just feel really blessed and fortunate to have been in the game this long and to, to be able to have experienced the things I've I've experienced.
0: Yeah. I can, I mean, you were around some legends of the game. What an incredible and really blessed opportunity that you had growing up in Southern California at that time.
1: Yeah. The funny, the funny thing is, is I was, (laughs) I was a ball girl at one of the LA Aztecs games and we, we were um, at halftime, we were led into the tunnel and, and the teams came out at half and um, and we were near their locker rooms. And uh, one of my friends we were like, look at their jerseys, like their practice jerseys are on their chairs or whatever at the Rose bowl. And mm. I was like, Ooh, Johann Cruyff's jersey. And I want to say oh, one of us God. took one, like a practice yeah, jersey. I hope so. Well, I don't have it. So <laughs> if it wasn't me, I either took it and someone took it from me or it just didn't make the move or I don't know what happened to it. But, um the funny thing is is a good friend of mine is his son-in-law and he does the Tovo academy in barcelona now and um i might have to hit him up for something johan at some point in time because i i between george best and johan Cruyff and pele I, you know i don't think i could have grown up watching three better players and oh my god um live as a you know as a 12 13 year old and um i just you know i i fell in love with the game i fell in love with the artistry of it i fell in love with uh everything about it, you know? Um, and, and again, you know, soccer made in Germany on TV because Ziggy, Ziggy and his family were able to tell people, Hey, you know, there's this opportunity for you guys to watch games and we're like, what on television really? so I do, I feel really fortunate to have that in my background. Um, and it, 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 it did. It made me fall in love with the game for life.
0: Yeah. I can imagine, man. Wow. That is an incredible story. Uh, what you said, your mom wasn't quite into the Boy Scouts and kind of pushed you away from <laughs> from Girl Scouts. There, what was her involvement uh, during your soccer career like?
1: Yeah, it, it, you know, looking back on it, it was perfect. She made sure somehow, some way she did, or the other people on my team, or I had a bike, and you know, life was simpler then. You just had to get to a park where you were practicing, and it was usually pretty close to home, so no one really needed a ride anywhere. Um, I don't ever I ever remember her. Uh, you know, uh, coming to a practice. She probably dropped me off or maybe was waiting at the end once in a while, but I had a bike, I had a moped, I had a unicycle. I could get myself to and from practice. Um, <laughs>
0: unicycle. Huh? I will, I will tell you, cause
1: my mom's probably too too old to be arrested now or a skateboard. Uh, my mom's probably too old to be thrown in prison now, but I will say that age 14, my mom finally, I had a moped as an eighth grade graduation present. So I got a moped when I was probably, 13 or 14, so I had a little motorized way to get around to do the job. I, I worked at a couple different places, uh, Marie Calendar's, hot dog on a stick. <laughs> um, mm. I could get to my jobs, I could get to soccer practice on my moped. But when I was a freshman or almost a sophomore in high school, because I was young for my grade, um, I was 17 when I graduated from high school, Is I, my mom finally threw the car keys at me and said, it, it, she would never do this to my brothers because they lacked any kind of brain cells or responsibility. <laughs> but she threw me the car keys to her Fiat X19 it, stick shift and said, "Here, take the car, only for work and soccer practice and back. And if you crash or hurt anybody, um, I'll go to jail. So my life Don't. will be." I'm like, "Okay." So I did drive no illegally. Pressure. I did drive illegally on and off for about a year before I took drivers' and <laughs> got my driver's permit. Wow. Um, yeah, but in general. Uh, my mom was a fan, you know, she loved coming to games when she could get off work early enough to come to high school games. She did, um, on the weekends, she, you know, and then she started dragging my, her three sisters, my aunts out to games to come and watch. And, uh, you know, she just, she, she loved watching me play. I think she was proud of me and I always knew she was proud of me. Uh, she would never comment on anything more, you know, that wasn't your best game. It would hurt me to my core, <laughs> but it was also a great reality check that I wasn't, you know, that that I was no better than anyone else on my team. She cheered for everybody. She, you know, she was just kind of the sideline person that was there, and I, I felt her presence. But there was no real conversations that went on around a lot of it. She loved the other kids on my team and my friends, and loved my coach, and just trusted that he was doing right by us. And it was, you know, the the epitome of the 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 days of it being your thing as a kid and not your parents' thing. So it was, yeah. I, I again, I. I I, I remember it all like it was yesterday, and uh, I, I wish for kids now that they had a, even just a little bit of that back.
0: That's so lucky, yeah. but it's, it's a blessing that parents really didn't know soccer back in the day, and and some still don't know soccer, but they still decide to put in their opinion about everything. Um, so it's really a blessing to just let how to, for your mom to have just let you have your experience and not be too involved with her opinions.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. And, and again, I I just, yeah, I just didn't, I think my brothers kept me in check too. And I kept them in check. My little brother started playing soccer and went up through AYSO to the point where they were traveling from Southern California to Northern California to play in-state sort of championship games at the AYSO level. And, uh, you know, and he, he would have been a, he started surfing. So which was free and he just became a surfer as opposed to a Mm -hmm. soccer player. But um, you know, it was, it was fun to kind of be his, he's a couple of years younger than me. So to watch him play and kind of be his coach, mentor, critic, uh, cheerleader was, was fun also, but it was all just like, because we loved it, not because we, you know, thought it would get us anywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, it was, it was really just for the love of it.
0: That's awesome. What was the coaching like? What was your development like as a youth player?
1: Yeah, it was, um, that's something that I've thought back on a lot. And I will, you know, as I, as I kind of, Go into the twilight here. I will think more about that because I, <laughs> I do think I'll write a book about it at some point, and it'll be this will be included in the book. Is that um, my my knowledge of the game? And uh, this is not from a you know an arrogant standpoint of what I know about it, but just how I see it and what I, I was exposed to when I was younger. I talked a lot about the NASL players and um, being a fan of watching the sport as well as playing it. But uh, I remember going to practice with our our club team again. You know, once I went from being an AYSO player. I don't remember a ton about AYSO coaching. I just remember playing. I don't remember being taught about positions or, you know, formations or whatever. It was just all about dribbling and passing and trying to score goals and having fun. And then when we, when I joined a club team going into my freshman year of high school, I think I want I played eighth grade on. Um, and I, I remember just small sided games being huge at our practices. We'd, we'd run, um, we, we'd do some fitness stuff, almost always with the ball at the beginning of practice. Uh, and then our coach would always play, Brian would always play in with us. Um, and if the teams were uneven, they run even. It, we rarely had neutral players. So you'd play six v five, you'd play four v three, you'd play whatever yeah. it was, you just divided it up and you, you rarely ever had a neutral player. So you had to learn to play numbers up, you had to learn to play numbers down and solve it. Uh, and it was just, it was about, small group play. So at a really young age, just knowing what um, combination play looked like, what defending one V one looked like. And we, you know, my friends and I, when he wasn't with us, we would always just try to play one V one to go to trees, you know, whatever mm. the, the nearest marker was. Okay. We were at the beach, bring a ball down to the beach, play. We'll put a stick in the sand here, a stick in the sand there. One of our flip flops here, one of our flip flops there. And we'll play, you know, we'll play to five, one V one to the sandal or whatever. And, um We just loved it, and so I just remember a lot of small sided stuff, not a lot of big group tactics. Uh, we had some incredible players on our team that went on to great careers, including Karen Jennings Gabera, who I played with as a youth player, uh, who went on to win the first golden ball at the World Cup in China in ninety one um, I, I had to defend against her for years. Um, she went to college at Santa Barbara, I went to school at Cal and. She's probably one of the best one V one artists as a female that I've ever watched unique as as unique as Pele in a, in a, in, in female form. And, uh, and so just, you know, all the small parts of the game that you could put onto the big field and translate. So once, once we started, you know, competing at the regional level and our first year at nationals as a youth club uh, I think we were way ahead of where some other girls teams were as far as just sort of our innate ability to understand tactics and 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 sort of study the. I was a I was a defender most of the time. I started out as a central midfielder, then I ended up as a sweeper, so to speak. Um, <laughs> I loved Franz Beckenbauer. I loved the way he played. Um, mm. I was I was more technical than you would ever imagine any center back to be. So I <laughs> I loved to dribble out of the back. Um, by the time I got to college and I played center back, I was. Probably second or third in assists every year, just by my, my wow. passing ability. Um, I was second or third in goals scored because of my ability on restarts. Uh, and and then I moved to outside back in the national team pool, and I played right back for quite a bit. Um, but I just think being able to study the game from the back and and understand sort of composure and patience is something that developed in my game over time, based on kind of what I was seeing when I was watching high level men's games. Mm. Um, so, I I just feel really fortunate. The practice was fun. I never remember dreading a practice
0: ever. That's That's great. Yeah, and you got to observe a lot of high-level talent and the, you know, when you just watch uh you learn so much, especially at that level. Now, you mentioned that you felt your group in Southern California was more advanced than others when you went to regionals and nationals. What do you feel like the difference was?
1: Um, I, I just, I, I think that we had, uh, and, and again, there were some pockets in the country. I think Texas was one, uh, the Northeast, Massachusetts, Connecticut was probably another, uh, pocket, not very many teams in the South, obviously, uh, you know, the university of North Carolina, but most of their players at the time were coming from Texas and Washington, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So the West, and, you know, Washington was another hotbed. I felt uh, we, we we came up against them in regionals quite a bit. Colorado sort of was starting to emerge, but Southern California, even more so than Northern California, was a hotbed. And um, and so you know the, the way the games looked would be, uh, I, I think, more refined passing, more refined team play and movement. Um, more ability for players to sort of interchange and the types of goals we would score. It wasn't just sort of run and gun or, you know, play very direct. It was, it just seemed more organized. Um, yeah, it was just, you know, there was just a a, a little bit about it until you got to the very top to nationals that was, uh, it it was hard to sort of put your finger on, you know, one of the teams even in our own area in Torrance that we struggled with was because they were just so much more physical than us, either taller, Mm -hmm. bigger, stronger, Hit harder, fouled more, um, but but that was something that we learned through technique to, and skill and and combination play to sort of o- overcome as well. So, uh, I just remember it being just. I mean, thinking about it makes me smile. It was a blast.
0: Yeah, those Southern California teams. My the, the last club team I coached would definitely struggled mostly with them and they just have there's so much competition and so like it, every game is like a state championship game i imagine at the higher levels of southern california.
1: Mhm. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, and i mean you still look now it's the player pool there is is pretty silly um and it's there's a lot of kids obviously there's a lot more parody around the country now but back in the day you used to see um large number of kids in the youth national teams uh from southern mm-hmm. california alone not again not just northern california but southern california specifically uh on the boys and the girls side pretty big player pool down there
0: yeah and that weather doesn't hurt either to be able to play year round so no it doesn't hurt <laughs> so you know you went to cal did really well as a defender over there and you said you accidentally got into coaching. What, what was the accident?
1: Well, I, I, I was kind of thrust into as a youth player, as well as a college player into leadership positions um, just as a, as a player coach kind of, you know, when I was, I had played, I mentioned I played on the same club team from the time I was 13 till I was uh, 18 or 19 and, or 18. And, my coach, his, he got married during that time. They were having a baby uh, late in my career. I was injured, and we were at a tournament in Las Vegas. I think it was regionals, and his wife went into labor, and he doesn't like to fly, so he had to drive home, and uh, we had games, and so he put me in charge of the games. And, wow. Uh, that was daunting um, yeah. and, and fun at the same time. And, you know, and I, I tended to sort of just because I was the one person that was on the team the entire six or seven years, me and maybe a couple of others, uh, I just kind of grew into this leadership position. Well, when I got to Cal, I mentioned that we were a club team still. Or I kind of got pushed into being the president of the soccer club at Cal, and we had to fight for uh, varsity status. I had to be the go-between between the club director and the athletic director. We had to remove our coach. So at the ripe old age of 18, I got to tell the man that recruited me that he was a nice guy and had done a great job for Cal soccer, <laughs> but that we thought that the AD was looking for someone with more – of a skill set in organization and business to, to help push us over the top to be a varsity sport. So I was charged with taking him to lunch and dismissing him from his job and and then hiring, um, a man out of Southern California that was an attorney, not necessarily a soccer guy, but he was a soccer dad. Uh, but he ended up being sort of the, the, the founding father of Cal women's soccer. His name was Bill Merrill. he unfortunately passed away in his early fifties from throat cancer, but he, um, got us varsity status. He got us scholarships. He, uh, entrusted us as players and empowered us to fight for ourselves to, uh, get what women's soccer deserved and, and put us in our, you know, sort of a place in history in the early eighties at Cal where we were going to final fours, we were flying around the country. He, you know, he was an attorney for air Cal at the time and Jeff, you know, he would get us non rev tickets on airlines to go to New York, to the Cortland state tournament. And I mean, all these crazy things. Um, and he was an inspiration and a motivator his his ability to teach the game was either from books or from bringing in other experts from southern california that he knew like marine kano like chris dangerfield from the earthquakes like he would bring those guys to our practices um Mm. you know there were no rules back then to have them coach Mm. us and (laughs) um and so here again you know my exposure to the game was uh it had a it had a heavy british influence i will say uh but, you know, it, it, it was one where um, we had all these great men that took notice of women's and girls' soccer and invested in us and, and spent time helping us be better. And so by the time I was getting ready to leave Cal and go to law school, he was a lawyer and he was, you know, I, I, he was someone who I looked to as a father figure and a coach. And he said, Leslie, you don't want to go to law school. He goes, why do you think I'm doing this for free? I don't, I hate being a lawyer. <laughs> and I said, you just don't think I can do it, Bill? And he's like, no, I think you can do it. I just think you'll hate it. And I said, uh, I said, no, you don't think I can do it. So I went to law school for a year. And boy, if I didn't, I love law school, to be honest. But like the people I met in San Francisco in the mid 80s that were, um, there's probably one lawyer for every five people in that city at the time. LA Law was a big no. TV show. It was like the Perry Mason of the mm-hmm. 80s. Mm-hmm. I uh, I told him, I said, you know what, Bill, I just, I don't like this. And I, I was still coaching part time. And um, I had stayed on after I graduated to help while I was going to law school. And, he ended up leaving. Um, I ended up staying at Cal for four years with three different head coaches. And Bill came back at the end of my um, assistant coaching position at the time and I coached with him for one last year. And then jobs started opening up and I, I thought, and I was playing at a pretty high level still and, and still trying to, I was in the national B team and I was still trying to make the national team and playing amateur soccer and loving it and, uh, and able to coach and so, Irvine, Arkansas, San Diego State, a bunch of different jobs started opening and people started calling me I'm like, wow, I could have my own team. And, and I just decided to break from Cal and I took the San Diego State job because it was closer to home and my family. And I thought it would be a great opportunity with not a lot of pressure. They, it was kind of a part-time job when they hired me. And by the time I showed up in August, it was a full-time job. Uh, but the, <laughs> they'd been a club. And so I knew what it was like to take a club team to varsity status. And it was just fun. No one was watching me. I was as good as any player on the team. I could play in with them. I, I could do everything by trial and error. And this, the expectations weren't really other than make sure the players have a good time and, um, and learn something and that you guys can compete to the best of your ability. And so it was such a great training ground for me as a young head coach to be able to do that. And then I got involved with ODP and, um, you know, four years later I applied, I was called about the Washington job and interviewed and, The rest is a little bit history, but it was, uh, yeah, it was not anything I ever intended to do when I told my parents that I was leaving law school. My mom was a little more understanding than my stepdad at the time, but um, it was, it was hard for me because I knew I was disappointing them. But, you know, in that disappointment, I knew I had to go with my heart and do what I felt like it is I was meant to do. And at the same time, drive myself to prove to them that it was the best decision I could ever make for myself. And, and it was, and nobody's more proud of me today than my mom of what I've accomplished in my career.
0: Hmm. What kind of values did your mom try and instill in you when you were a child?
1: Um, I don't think she ever tried to instill anything in, in me intentionally. <laughs> uh, I, I think my mom was so busy trying to raise four hellions that, um, it was just about putting food on the plate. And, uh, you know, my, my grandmother, may she rest in peace died at 59. And that was probably you know, seven or eight years after uh, my mom remarried and uh, my stepdad lived with us and we were old enough to take care of ourselves and she didn't really live with us during the week anymore. But my mom insists that we drove her to an early (laughs) grave. Jokingly, of course, but um, (laughs) looking back might might have been the case. But I think my mom was (laughs) working as hard as she could to make ends meet. And I had a um, you know, a family of aunts and uncles and, and mostly aunts. And my grandparents um, and cousins around us, we we just grew up as a family. And everyone was just trying to make ends meet. Nobody was um, rolling in the dough and able to do everything and anything that they wanted. But it was, it was just kind of the simple life of you, you know, you you were in activities that you could afford. And you, you know, my mom made sure that we were signed up for things and stayed busy so that she, you know, didn't have to worry about where we were and When she was at work, and either my grandma was watching us or we were teenagers and able to either play soccer in the summer and make sure we went to school. And I I think the biggest thing my mom unintentionally showed me was just unconditional love and making sure that whatever it is I wanted to do, that it was something that made me happy. And if I was going to do it, to try my hardest and be the best that I could, and a work ethic that um, is unparalleled. I mean, my mom has just worked really hard her whole life to. To make something of herself. And, and so, you know, she came from nothing. And I, you know, I, I just have admired that my whole life and tried to make sure that whatever she did to give me opportunities when I was younger, that I, I now, as an adult, make sure that I make the most of any opportunity I'm given.
0: Mm, beautiful. What an amazing role model you had there.
1: Yeah. Still have. S-
0: yeah. <laughs> so I'm a stepfather myself, uh-huh. although I, I just call myself. Her dad. Uh Um, What was the transition when he came into your life? How old were you, and what was that like?
1: Being a stepdad, you know that kids. Well, I don't know how old (laughs) your stepdaughter is. How old is she?
0: She's twenty right now. I met her when she was seven. Uh,
1: Yeah, brutal. You know, I think step (laughs) kids automatically, depending upon the situation. But the most experience I've had is that stepchildren, especially, I think with stepdads, they automatically just don't like you. (laughs) <laughs> um, and they, they make life hard on you in these weird kind of passive-aggressive ways. So I think I, I learned some, you know, I learned to be somewhat passive-aggressive when my stepdad came into my life. One of the things, and, and he passed, he was 14 or 15 years older than my mom. So there was an age difference there. He had four kids of his own. Uh, my, my dad wasn't really in our lives that much after the time I was six Uh, He was in our lives somewhat, but not a ton. And, you know, probably because I probably my mom's wish that he not be, uh, you know, I don't know, no no other real big reason than that. There wasn't anything that was so dysfunctional that it was, you know, horrible growing up. It just is the way it worked out. Mm -hmm. Um, But my stepdad was, he had four kids of his own that were all older than the four of us. We never lived together. He was uh, a clinical pathologist. So he was a doctor who was used to doing things we weren't used to doing, but my recollection as a young person at seven or eight years old, that was all of a sudden he was in our lives and my grandma wasn't in my life as much. And so for that, Mm. I was, uh, I think, angry, (laughs) um, Mm. a lot as a, you know, an eight, nine, ten year old. Um, and I remember, uh, just really making it difficult for him to assimilate to life with us when he finally did get, they got married and they moved, we moved in and we moved houses and, you know a lot of things changed when he came into our lives. and I think more so for me, I clung to soccer. Uh, not that it was bad. it was just for me, it was a lot. And um, I think for my brothers, it was different. I think you know it was hard for him to be a father to them in some ways. and so they just kind of ran rampant. and I more latched on soccer and my friends and their families. and I looked to my mom for guidance, and I continued to work hard at the things that I did do. and I looked around and I knew what boundaries were where sometimes my brothers didn't see them when school or school and behaving were concerned. I, I feel like I could always kind of get to the edge and know what was going over the edge. But, um, you know, again, this was mid to late seventies and life was kind of crazy then anyway. Um, you know, it was for, for, you know, the sort of the hippie movement and you know, everyone was sort of out there. It was a it, it, post Vietnam, was kind of a crazy time in America. And, there there was a lot, I think the divorce rate during that time was extremely high, and kids were sort of left with the first, you know, one-parent households or two working parents, and so I I lived through that, and um, I I think, you know, at at the end of the day, my stepdad gave me um, the idea that education, and here's a man that had two PhDs, um, that education was very important that um, exposing yourself to different things and trying different things outside of just sports was really important. Uh, that uh, seeing and, and and traveling different places was important. Soccer was starting to give me that, and I saw what he meant. Uh, mm. You know, he, again, I mentioned law school, and my oldest stepbrother is a lawyer. I have a stepbrother that's a doctor, and it was very important to my stepfather, who's Jewish, to, to be a professional, and that was something in their heritage that was always really important. And if you look at the Jewish culture, it's mm-hmm, it typically sort of trades people than professionals tradespeople people than professionals and it was he talked about it all the time it was a running joke with all my friends because he they'd come to the house and he would always say um so have you considered the sciences <laughs> it was like the running <laughs> joke is like okay get ready dr silver's coming at you about about being a biology major and god forbid one of my friends actually did end up going to medical school he, he liked them more than he would like me. And I thought I was going to be a dentist. I thought I was going to, when I went to Cal, I was a biology major for two and a half years. I did end up settling on law school. And when I had to tell them I didn't want to do that anymore, it was like, you're joking, right? You'll take a year off. You'll go back. And I was like, "Mm, I think I want to do this coaching thing. But at the end of the day, he, um, he was a huge uh, advocate of mine. He loved me dearly. And he, uh, he and I, um, into my adulthood, I would say. Into we butted heads for a long time, but into my 30s and 40s, uh, and up until he passed away, probably four or five years ago, Um, he was just a kind, kind man. And as a, a finally a grown woman, I could see him um in, in the light that I probably should have always been seeing him in. Who was someone who was very caring and had my best interest in mind. I learned a lot from him.
0: Yeah yeah, it's amazing you don't see that until later, and that same exact thing happened to my daughter. She it took her being out of the house for a couple of years to yeah. realize that it was actually that was actually okay. yeah, that you're an okay and person. Really... and yeah.
1: <laughs> and even with your own biological parents,, so, you know, I, and I talk about this with the players on my team all the time when I was in as a college coach, is, you know you you need to grow into being able to make your own decisions and realize that there's things you're going to do that your parents aren't going to agree with, But if it makes you happy, um, you need to convince them that it makes you happy over time. They might not in the mm-hmm. moment, but they're always going to love you. Um, mm-hmm. And then it's, it's your job to, to own up to the decisions that you do make. And, and you're going to make some bad ones. And at the end of the day, they're going to be there for you. Your parents don't stop loving you because you make mistakes. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you just have to, the, the earlier you can and the younger you can learn that, the better off you're going to be. But you, you just have to know that they're always going to love you. And they'll particularly love you if they can see that you're happy um, Mm -hmm. and, and, and lean on them for guidance and support. Um, don't be so dependent that you, that your decisions become their decisions as opposed to your own. But, um, you know, the parent child dynamic, it's different for every family, but it's, it's an interesting one to be sure. And, um, you know, I've saw that up close and personal as a soccer coach uh, all the time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. So yeah, let's get back to soccer coach. So you, you went from San Diego State to University of Washington, you said that was your dream job. Yeah. And you had a lot of success there. What do you attribute your success up in Washington?
1: Failing, <laughs> failing in willi- a willingness to fail, you know, we had a lot of failure, too. And I just think that it's hard to win. It's hard to be the only one standing at the end and to win a national championship. People talk about that all the time. Um, you know, to be Pac-10 champions in 2000 was uh, quite a feat. We were the first team outside of California to do it. Um, you know, there's some powerhouse schools in our conference, and I just felt like competing the right way and, and putting our players in a position to to play the best and be the best was always my job. I never wanted to coach to save my job. I never wanted to coach to um, shy to you know pad our record or shy away from the difficult teams. I wanted to be the I wanted to be the teams that people feared playing and Um, and that wasn't always easy. I I just think there were some things at a big public school like Washington when it came to scholarships and aid and um, not being able to uh, package financial aid or academic aid with other aid made it um, difficult to recruit against schools like Cal um, and SC and Stanford and UCLA, Uh, but we did it, and and we managed to have what I will look back on as a career and say to have enough success that I, I, I can say I felt successful, but it at the end of the day my my win loss column isn't uh what I'm ever going to judge myself on i'm going to judge myself on uh the kids that i did right by uh, i'm going to judge myself on the kids that i felt like i could have done better by and uh the the i will judge myself uh and the job that you know my coaching staff and i did in developing a program that people wanted to continue to be a part of long after their last game that they played
0: mm. yeah that's what it's all about it's all about the kids yep. at the end yeah so now you've transitioned to the girls Academy commissioner. What is your new role going to be like? And and it's a, basically it's a new thing. So well, tell people about it.
1: Yeah. Um, back in April, the U uh, the S soccer decided to z- dissolve uh, the development Academy, which had been in place, I think coming up on eight or nine years on the boys side, but only three years on the girls. And, um, for whatever reason, I either financially or they wanted to reorganize what youth, what they were taking on. There were other leagues, I think, that U.S. Soccer probably felt were doing um, a good enough job that they didn't have to have that under their umbrella at the time either, or it didn't have to be run in-house. Um, who knows? But I also saw a lot of clubs and coaches who invested a lot of time and energy into uh, being in the development academy and also just you know long-term being in the youth game, particularly when it came to girls that were sort of left out in the cold with no place to play. And, uh, and I've got to see firsthand just sort of the, the predatory (laughs) terrifying way that youth soccer operates sometimes with players and coaches and grabbing up teams and swallowing up leagues and uh, you know, Mm. kind of the fight for the almighty dollar and uh, and just sort of the, the power structure of it all is, is interesting to say the least. And I don't have as much of an interest in that as I have in trying to help girls, uh, In the game have a platform to be empowered to uh sort of uh, have control over their own pathway in the game whatever that looks like if their pathway in soccer leads them to be a coach if their pathway in soccer leads them to be a national team player if their pathway in soccer leads them to be an athletic director or an administrator or a referee or someone who Uh, or is on the organizing committee for the Olympics or a World Cup, uh, I want them to understand that that's something that they can do and they can see people who've done it. And um, because I am a true believer that soccer is the world's game can give that to you. And if they're going to be a CEO Mm -hmm. of a big company that has nothing to do with soccer, then their soccer environment will have given them the confidence as a young woman to think that they can do that too. And obviously in combination with their education. But I think this league, in just a short period of time, the Girls' Academy, has shown me that uh, there's a bunch of people out there that have that same idea, that same vision, that uh, we need to do better by our girls and women in this country in all aspects of life, and soccer is just one more platform that I think we can help them. Uh, I I think soccer is, again, being the world's game, is one where – All over the world, there's story after story in small towns and cities where soccer saves lives and can be something that is inclusive Mm. as opposed to divisive. And I think there's no other or better time in this country to fight for gender equality and fight for inclusivity when it comes to children of color, girls of color. Mm. Uh, And um, yeah, I mean, these all sound like big, uh, you know, social things. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm in it to help make those things better, whether I'm going to solve them all or not, uh, is, is, isn't the question, but am I going to work towards um, having it be a better place for kids to be 100% and at the same time I think we can help those elite players which are again a small percentage of the kids that end up playing sports. Can we help those elite players achieve their goals if they show the potential and the capability of doing it we and we certainly are going to so I think it's just a really exciting and fun thing to to delve into right now at this point in uh, in my life. Um, I have the energy to do it you know and and for me having a remote job was a little bit of a a box i I needed to tick for now at least for the next few years is to be able to to stay home and Um, and not pick up and move my location in seattle um and and be able to work work from you know here and travel to places and and do my job well uh and to not be on the field with players and coach was a difficult thing to give up for now it doesn't mean that i'm giving it up forever you know you never say never um the college game Mm -hmm. isn't something i'll be a part of again uh but would i like to coach players again on the field i think i would uh but that you know that's that's a TBD type of thing for me. Um, and I know enough clubs and, and coaches that would let me guest coach if I, I felt like I needed to get the fix of, of being mm-hmm. on the field with players. Cause I do think I, 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 I will always be, uh, I will first and foremost always be a player at heart. Um, uh, but I will always be a coach at heart.
0: Now, do you still play?
1: <laughs> uh, no, well, I have played seven aside at my alumni games at Cal um, you know, a little bit of one and two touch break into a jog. I've got a, a <laughs> I've got a significantly bad right knee. I can still kick mm. a ball. I can still, you know, my touch is okay, but uh, walk soccer is probably the best way to describe how I can play right now. But, um, I, uh, I, I did play at a pretty high level up in, in, through my forties. Um, and we won a couple national championships here in Washington on our amateur teams. And, Uh, and so in my head, I can still play. Is that (laughs) going (laughs) to
0: Yeah, I'm right there with you. Yeah, Uh, you have to learn to change how you play, almost play smarter, not harder. Yeah,
1: and as a coach, I'll tell you, my players didn't really ever realize this, but my sympathy for them was high. I was just like, soccer hurts. (laughs) Yeah. It is a, If you are not fit, is a physically it is a physically grueling sport. So I would always be like, ah, we can't make them run that much more. Like we gotta (laughs) we gotta ease up on them. And my assistants would look at me like, God, you have gotten soft. I'm like, I'm just realizing how painful this game is, or like the tackles in youth soccer sometimes. I you know, and I was a center back and I and defending, I love defending. Um, and I, I just look at some of these tackles in youth soccer, and I'm like, "Ow, got <laughs> no." <laughs> anyway, um, it's like it's like learning to hate roller coasters when you're older. <laughs> but uh, yeah, in my head, in my head, I can still play.
0: <laughs> that's good. Well, that's it's all the mentality. That's the most important thing mm-hmm. right there. So, you know, one question I get a lot about especially at this time is what is the recruiting landscape like right now during this coronavirus since a lot of camps, college camps have been canceled, a lot of games have been canceled, so there's not as many opportunities for coaches to see players. What do you recommend players um, do, and and how to soothe their parents' worry?
1: Yeah, I think that is the million dollar question, um, or at least the two hundred thousand dollar question. <laughs> if, you're, if you're worried <laughs> about college tuition, right? Um, of course. Yeah, so uh, you know, it, it, it's it's one thing to say something, and it's another thing to what the reality of what happens. You know, at the at the highest levels of div- Division One college soccer. I would love to say to kids who want to go and play at uh, a big-time program and they think they're going to get a scholarship to go play in these in some of these bigger conferences and, and whatnot, and they feel like nothing's going to be left if they don't say yes right away. Um, I think there is a reality to that, and I already know that there's kids through COVID who haven't been seen as players in the last you know five or six months who have not been able to visit college campuses that are committing verbally and saying yes to – to going to schools where they've never been before. Well, you know, in the last couple of years, there's this thing called the transfer portal, and that thing is filled with players who made bad choices. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Thousands of, of just Division I female coaches. Um, I don't have access to the portal now, but if I were to ask one of my college friends to go on and look, I guarantee you it's probably over 2,000 kids,
0: wow. and
1: um, or women. And and that's just unfortunate in my eyes. And and, and and maybe I'm old school that way in that, you know what, if you don't like your decision, great, go somewhere else. But the investment that coaches make in in choosing players um, and, and how much you see the um, sort of the innocence of these kids that think they're going to go be at this one school and academically it's the right fit and soccer it's the right fit and and parents are so relieved and excited that this is going to happen and then the number of people that it goes sideways for is just sad in my opinion. Um, And a lot of that has to do with the process has been sped up too much. The process isn't thorough enough. Um, Parents tend to panic that uh, because coaches are pushing a little bit, that it's not going to be there for their kid at the end of the day. And again, I I understand why they feel like that. Uh, So if I was still a college coach and I've been on plenty of podcasts with uh, my associate head coach, Amy Griffin, is now a a club director for the uh, OL rain here in Seattle. And she's had many college coaches on to do podcasts for her club. Uh, talking about patients, and make sure you look and make sure you ask the right questions and at least do virtual tours of the campus and dig in on the internet to see what the place is like, look at what kind of players they have on their team, see if you can go back and look at old video of their team playing, ask for old video to see that the style fits you. I mean, do all the things you can possibly do virtually, talking on the phone with the coach, establishing a rapport and a, a relationship with them. Um, is really really important to see if your personalities match and if you think this is going to be somebody that you want to play for. Ask around, um, you know, in your club for kids that have maybe gone to that school or what other people's experience have been. How many transfers have they had in and out? Are people happy there? Uh, mm. And again, the experience is what you're going for. Uh, one team's going to win a national championship. North Carolina's won 22 of them <laughs> in the <laughs> time that I've been a coach. So. Wow. You know, there's only – Portland's won two. Santa Clara's won one. Notre Dame's won two. Uh, who else has won two?
0: Stanford. Stanford's okay.
1: won a couple. Yeah, There's only there's only a couple other schools that have won multiple, and there's a few that have won one. And if I had time, I could tell you all of them. But mm-hmm. my point being, at the end of the day, one team is whole thing. Um, if you want to be the player that goes and tries to make that, that program that academically fits you, that you know you're going to have a blast and have a great experience and you're going to be a big contributor – in on and off the field and you're going to have to work hard and it's going to be fun it should be it it shouldn't be the means to an end it should be something that you go and spend this awesome time of your life where um, afterwards you're going to have to hit the real world and and probably have a job probably you know be a contributing member of society college is the place that you have this last bit of freedom where it should be a blast and if soccer gets to be a part of it do your homework to make sure that that you have the best chances of that happening. And there's so many places where that can be that kids Mm -hmm. haven't even thought of, but the peer pressure to, um, and the expense of of club soccer and youth soccer to try to make it be this one certain thing is, uh, is kind of gone off the rails and it's really refreshing as a college coach or even as someone in the youth game now where you, you hear these parents who are letting their kids guide the process and supporting them in it. But, um, you know, it, it, and and in some people's eyes making unpopular decisions. So I'm going to wait. Ooh, really? Well, what if? Well, I, I'm going to, I'm going to bet on me. I'm going to bet that I'm good enough, that I, I still am going to have the opportunity to go somewhere where I feel like I'm choosing as opposed to it's choosing me. Um, and and I have a say in my own happiness. And, and I think it's just a, it's a really gray process for a lot of kids. And when parents are not uh, educated on it, or they're, you know, they're, they're either first generation college students that they're sending off to school, or they're parents that don't have any idea how the athletic side of college admissions and and selecting a school goes. It's, uh, you know, I think if they're paying a lot of money for club soccer, it behooves the clubs to really help educate them on that. It's mm-hmm. not just up to the college coach that, you know, these, these parents are investing a lot in club soccer. Clubs have, a uh, I think, a duty to make sure that kids are and parents are being educated on, on what the landscape is like. Um, but that's also being proactive. You have to, you have to do that education yourself. You can't just wait. Um, to the end of the day and, and think it's going to work out for you, but it's I do not I don't, I don't envy kids. I think it's a, a great thing to be able to say that you're a college athlete and this is what you want to go and do, but it, it certainly seems to have become something that's uh, way more stressful than it should have ever intended that it ever should have become. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's crazy how, um, negatively emotional recruiting seems to be for a lot of people.
0: Yeah. What do you attribute that to?
1: Um, early, early recruiting, the ability to commit early, the ability to, to just, you know, um, sort of, uh, insinuate that there's going to be scholarship money for a kid and just trying to grab kids up in their freshman and sophomore year, as opposed to waiting till a little bit later in their high school um Mm -hmm. time and and even even now that they've pushed the rules these last couple years to a little bit later i think it it, you might see it swing back to being a little bit um more uh thorough and and give the kids a little bit more time to figure out what is best for them uh i hope it swings back that way but the early recruiting and then this these freshmen sophomore commit things this is and then they're waiting for three years to go somewhere and then maybe Mm -hmm. you know coaches go kind of cold on them because all of a sudden this kid that they've committed isn't as good as they thought they were going to be. Oh yeah. Puberty happens. And this is not what she looked like two years ago. And this is not how she played. (laughs) And this is not, you know, this. and the kid that's a late bloomer that, Oh my gosh, I didn't even notice this kid two years ago. Look how good she is now. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's a guessing game. And, and again, it's the relationship piece of it has uh, the amount of time that you have to understand one another as a coaching staff and a player and a family is, is limited. So all those things have made it more difficult. It just, it, it takes a lot more work now to to get it right
0: mm-hmm.
1: for the player and the co and the college coach, to be honest, it's a lot of guessing games still.
0: Yeah. And I can imagine sometimes you win, sometimes you lose in well, that, that guessing game. Yep. So Hence
1: the transfer portal.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It, So if what advice do you have for parents who are receiving or players who are receiving this pressure from coaches to commit early, like how can they step into their power and say, you know what, I want to wait to make this decision because there are some who may only have one or two offers and they just want to snag that up. So what kind Mm -hmm. of advice do you have for them?
1: Well, if they, if they feel that way and they do feel like those are their, their only options and they, and and then hopefully leading up to those two options, they at least feel comfortable with those two places. But if they're, if they're not sold on them, then they should wait. They shouldn't just jump because they have to, they have to, they sort of have to hedge their bet that they will find something. And, um, and and a lot of times players have to be willing to say, I'll walk on. I think I can make your team or I, you know, can I have a, a roster spot at least or, to just wait and reopen their search down the line a little bit. But if, if they get to the point where they're panicked that this is that these two opportunities are the ones they have and they're not going to come, then leading up to that point, you would hope, hope that they had done their own research proactively enough to feel comfortable with those choices. So it's the, it's, the, it's the wait too long to know anything about it and then feel like you are just literally throwing a dart at the board and praying that it works out. Um, mm-hmm. Is where you find yourself in a, in a bad spot, and I think that that's where, again, club coaches, high school coaches, helping and being involved in the recruiting process early. Um, again, you know, when a kid's a freshman or a sophomore, they need to start at least thinking about the process from an academic standpoint, thinking about the process from an athletic standpoint, and what and, and having people in their lives and in their inner circle that are honest enough with them that know uh, what potential they have to play at what level. I think that's where kids. Um, mm-hmm. or more often than not sold a bill of goods is that they have people that are telling them, oh yeah, you can play there when hmm, not really, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, um, It's and 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 that's the thing that I watch the most is that parents and kids don't want to hear that. And they think it's, um, you know, you're not doing your job because you're being honest with them. And then they end up a couple years later with, you know, they've been looking at school X when they should have been looking at the level of school Y a little bit more and they didn't listen. And uh, and then they they do end up kind of unhappy or without opportunities, and they think it's someone else's fault. So they've got to have a really good self awareness to, and have people mm. in their camp that are willing to have those honest conversations. Like, where do you really think I can play? What level? What schools? Where should I be looking? Yeah. And again, I, I feel like it's the duty of clubs that are are have paying customers as kids and 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 parents who um, should be able to lean on them for that kind of advice. There should be experts in that field at, at the club mm. level that that understand that, and it's not just. How many um, how many kids can we put on our website that are playing at top twenty schools? It's are you doing right. by every are you doing right by every single kid that's playing in your club? If this is their mm-hmm. goal,
0: yeah, that's great advice. Uh, I have some other questions. I'm going to jump into some parent questions. Uh, parents who asked me questions to ask you, mm-hmm. and so I'm going to give some hometown advantage for the New Mexico people that reached out to me first. five hundred five. that's right. So <laughs> Alex, uh, Alex from New Mexico asks, how would you build a great girls program at the club level? If you're starting from scratch?
1: Well, the GA isn't starting from scratch, the girls Academy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think if you're going to build a, a great girls club from scratch that you, um, at the that you have a great game model at the youngest age group so that you understand uh what a, a, a u a u10 player let's say say depending on the age group you're starting at that your u10s your u9s and your u8s that you understand what the um, key qualities for those players are to have before they you know get to age 10 11 12. Um, and obviously that starts with the technical piece of the game but i think we underestimate underestimate players a lot and their learning capability. And so building in small sided games that require decision making and not just not just making sure that they're technically sound and have a ton of touches on the ball, but that you're putting them in problem solving situations. And you're you're always as a coach uh, teaching players to think uh, at a young age, because I, I think that's where you find most, you know, when you get to the 11, 12 and 13 year olds who physically are starting to be able to do different things technically because of their size or their speed or their their technical ability. They haven't been put in positions to problem solve with their technique. So the decision in that split moment to be able to execute that technique under pressure is what's going to make them uh, a better player than someone else. And so mm-hmm. um, making sure that we give kids the freedom to think and solve problems on their own. And that's setting up activities where you don't overcoach, but you put them in instances where they have to fail to learn and, uh, I, would, I would get the coaching model from the bottom up right from the very beginning. That's how I would develop a club. And, uh, and when, when you talk about gender specifically, uh, girls, you know, I think that, you know, and, and Heather Dyke is a very good friend of mine, the coach at UNM. And uh, I was around when she and her sister-in-law founded and started the LEAD Academy. And uh, the whole premise behind that was not, not just number of touches on the ball in sessions, um but it wasn't necessarily making it about not not competing, but you weren't on a team. You were there to um be empowered as an individual player to 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 fail and to have a growth mindset on okay it's a, it's to normalize making mistakes because soccer is a game of mistakes and I think their methodology and their way of thinking and putting especially young girls who um tend to be a little bit more meek or don't really um Find themselves in positions very often where, you know, they they feel like they are empowered to lead themselves or that they can have leadership capabilities. That they can find those on the soccer field. Uh, I think that's really really important in in a female environment is to uh, make sure you're 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 letting young girls understand that it's okay to fail. But now, what are you going to do with that failure? And Mm -hmm. Um, and, 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 and to have the right people around them to foster it and to really make sure that it fuels them to, to improve and to try new things and to not worry about, you know, what just happened, but to move forward to the next thing and grow from it. Um, Mm -hmm. I think those environments tend to be few and far between and, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a structure that's unstructured and, and that you put them in and that you, you sort of nurture, but I, I think that that's, uh, for the female mindset, I think we underestimate. I think it's for boys a lot of times too, is that we think that boys Mm -hmm. want to be yelled at and told, Hey, you're better than that. Or the bravado of it all. I think they, I think boys sometimes um, quit sports because they're, they're just, they're badgered too much (laughs) and it doesn't Mm -hmm. become fun for them because all they ever hear is what they have, what they've done wrong and not what they've done right. And that doing something wrong is the end of it. And they're, they're told that it's wrong, but not how to fix it. And, um so I just think the psychological aspect of, of how you build your your game model has to be as important as the technical and the tactical piece of it.
0: Mm. Awesome. You're speaking my language. I love it. Yeah. Um so Nathan, also from New Mexico, he asks what differences you see with today's technophiles and past athletes that you coached.
1: Technophiles yeah. and past athletes. What does that even mean? People that are in love <laughs> with technology? Yeah. Yeah in uh, okay, so it, attached to their phone is that what he means <laughs> pretty much
0: yep. mm-hmm.
1: uh yeah i I think um you know we all have to we all have to live in the moment and and and, and you know I think there's things that i i'd left i definitely and you've heard it probably just in how I am and um and, and my story and my background I think if I wasn't drawing on my own background that I would be doing my players a disservice as a coach and and even my coaching candidates, if I didn't um, sort of remain true to myself and draw from my past experiences, were, which were mainly pre-technophilia, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> um, so, but, at the, but at the same time, I would have never gotten to where I got and if I didn't stay up with the game, the modern game, with technology, with uh, um. what, what you know, the different tools that we can use. I think my biggest learning curve came probably five or six years ago in the college game alone when I was exposed to as a coaching educator uh, and with U.S. soccer um, and the MLS and, and the leagues as to what uh, technologies like Prozone were doing with analytics and what they were doing. And so, you know, what different kind of uh, video editing we can do, what, other, what kind of analysis we can do of the game and um, periodization and, and all these different things based in science that we can do to make the game better and we all dove really head first and heavy into trying to have the latest and newest gadget. And how can we, and in the college game, I learned about three years into that, you don't have time to use it all to the best of the extent that, that all of that stuff is is meant more for the professional game full time when you have 12 months to, and you're, and you're playing a 60 game season, not a 20 game season over nine months, as opposed to 12 weeks in college. And uh you're not rotating players at the end of a 3 month period and losing seniors and gaining freshmen so learning how to dial all that back into the necessities of what we actually need in our environment and I tell coaches in the coaching schools this all the time don't do more than um and, than what you need don't use more technology than what's um going to help you and if you get so involved in the technological side you're going to you know kind of take your eye off the proverbial ball and 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 miss what's actually um, back to old school, what's actually going on in front of you with your players and, and with your team, with your own bare eye and your own expertise, trusting what you see and what you can coach. So um, mm-hmm. I think it's been a big learning curve. Uh, I think there are so many things technologically that can uh, help um, help the game and that are uh, put you at an advantage and are, are just so fun to study. But if you don't get your head out of the computer and your butt off the chair as a coach and relish being on the field with actual living, breathing human beings, if COVID has taught us anything, mm-hmm. <laughs> coach, coaching on the field is way more fun than all of that stuff for me personally. So um, yeah. I think it's always good to have a technophile on your staff. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Well, what about, I think, you know, Nathan may be thinking more of a player you know, do you see a difference between, let's say, players that you coached your last year at Washington versus when you started at San Diego State or your first year at Washington?
1: Yeah, I think it's much more difficult on teams now with cell phones and with technology. Uh, it's much, it's it's become a different chore. Uh, and again, we can't put this on kids. It's, we're as addicted to phones as adults as as the players on our teams are. Who's kidding themselves? Um, so it, it's just become a different ball game to uh socialize your team and your players in a way that uh that works for them you know put the cell phones in the in the basket where no cell phones on the bus no this i mean i think you have to have flexibility and rules around all of that stuff uh, but you you have to spend more time um in team building and in connecting them you know face to face eye to eye and their communication skills you have to meet them where they are a little bit, but at the same time, uh, I think it's, it, it is more of a, a it, it just happened more organically before. Now it's a little bit more of a task that you have to pay attention to is mm-hmm. how are, how is every player on the team being socialized into this group and how, how are they communicating with one another and are they communicating in a way that is two way and not via text? Are they having important conversations face to face as opposed to, um, texting each other or uh, sending someone a DM or non-verbally or however they're communicating has to be paid attention to because at the end of the day, building trust and being able to have hard one-on-one conversations and group conversations with a team are the most important thing that can make or break a a group. And so uh, 100% over the, the last decade, we've had to pay attention to that as coaches way more than we did before.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think for parents, it just said uh, there has to be limits. Yeah. That's the thing. And to not use electronics as a babysitter too much. You know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah.
0: Um, okay. So let's see. Melissa from California asks what you look for in your goalkeepers and what favorite techniques or favorite games do you remember from Hope Solo?
1: huh. <sighs> Man, um, where's <laughs> Amy? Where's Amy when I need her? No, I, I I talk about this all the time. I was just watching one of the NWSL games the other day, and uh, there's this thing, and it it happens a lot in men's soccer, and it's I don't know, it's it's kind of the modern goalkeeper. I want to say I have this old school vision of goalkeepers, but I, I Amy Griffin, Amy Allman, she's on the '91 World Cup team, and my mm-hmm. associate head coach for 24 of my 26 years. Um, she. Uh, is only 5'4", and managed to make it as a goalkeeper onto the national team at 5'4". So athleticism is something that um, is really, really important. Uh, Someone that, obviously, um, their their physical capability, it doesn't have to do with height. Height helps, clearly, in your frame. Um, Mm -hmm. But your athleticism and your footwork and your ability to be mobile and um, agile and explosive and all those different uh, attributes physically are huge. Uh, for a goalkeeper, because I watched her at five four have to maximize her her athletic ability to be able to cover the goal alone and to be able to understand how to cover her box and play ball. Um, the other thing she had to do at five four was learn the game in a way that she saw less shots, so being able to organize a team in front of you, which didn't come um, for mm-hmm. hope solo until much later in her career because. Uh, Hope could make the exceptional game-winning save that was out of this world that looked like she was from you know, Matrix uh, that <laughs> you just didn't see in other goalkeepers. Uh, so she could rely on that, and she relied on being a great shot stopper and, and shot saver uh, due to her athletic ability as opposed to organizing, whereas Amy tried to tell her And when she got to the pro game and was in the, the WPSL and went over to Sweden and played, and they didn't speak English. She learned to organize her teams a lot better, and and, and she is a very good reader of the game. So Hope's organizational ability made her have to make that great save less, but she could then do both. She could organize her back line and and read the game and prevent shots, Um, and then when she had to make the big big save, she could. Uh, Goalkeeping is emotionally and mentally exhausting, and Amy always talks about putting field players in goal for at least one goalkeeper training a year to get them to have sort of a, an appreciation for what their goalkeeper does physically. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit like rowing and crew. The amount of training um, there is to actual race opportunities is similar in goalkeeping to the amount of training you do to the amount of times you actually have to make that save to save mm-hmm. a game, not win a game, but to save a game, at least keep your team in it. Is, uh, it's, it that ratio is way um, skewed compared to what it is for a field player so just understanding the mental fortitude and the attitude that a goalkeeper has to have and you know goalkeepers get called crazy all the time for even wanting to put their face in front of a ball um i got sidetracked a little bit i was talking about these kick saves so there's one particular technique that i i can't stand in goalkeeping and it's the one where uh they come out and they're cutting down the angle and they make themselves big and then the shot happens instead of going hands and chest to the ball they put a foot out and make like a hockey save uh-huh. And, it, and it works sometimes, but just on sheer geometry, it covers so much less <laughs> of the goal. And I saw someone get scored on the, uh, Amy Rodriguez scored the other day on somebody, um, Utah was playing and I was like, and she went with her foot and she made herself like, it just didn't cover it. And, and I've seen Amy make that save 7,000 times. And it was chest to the ball, feet to the far post, you cover so much more, you just make yourself big. And I've seen it hit her way more often than not. Um, mm-hmm. or just to have the bravery to put your face down there and go chest to the ball to someone's <laughs> feet. And, and that's, that's how that save should happen on a breakaway or when you're one-on-one with a player. And, and that's how hope would make that save. And I've seen it a thousand times, but there's this new thing where they, they're set, they stand up and they try to make this weird hockey save and it just, I don't know, it's my pet peeve. So I don't know mm-hmm. who started teaching that or when it became a thing, but as a, as a lay person, <laughs> that's not a goalkeeper <laughs> coach, it drives me nuts. Um, yeah. Hope and the penalty kicks... Brazil versus Germany in the world cup in 2011 was one of my, the highlights as a coach and a friend and a person for me with her um, that she could actually see and hear Amy and I in that huge crowd uh, during those penalty kicks. Mm. Um, And uh, you know, it was just, it was a special, special moment. Uh, We won the PAC 10 championship in 2010. Uh, Hope was our goalkeeper at Washington and there were, there were some saves she made that year. Uh, particularly two saves against Stanford against Marsha Wallace against uh, who was the other one against maybe Marcy Ward. I don't remember, but she made some saves in that game that um, were otherworldly one where I put my head down. I said, she almost had it. And Amy's hitting me on the shoulder on the bench. She did get it (laughs) in her hands. I'm like, Oh, so I I, I learned to start playing it way more cool when hope was in goal (laughs) later on in her career. But um, there were some things that she did that were otherworldly. And there's a reason that she holds the stats that she does. And, and uh, as history moves along, I think people are going to appreciate hope uh, more and more for her accomplishments um, uh, because her statistics and she got to a point in her game, but I personally think her career ended too early, but she got to a point in her game where um, it's just going to be really tough for anybody to match.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's incredible. Yeah. So just- go with uh, one or two more here. Tristan from Alabama says, what advice do you have for young players who don't have a girls academy or high level platform in their market?
1: Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And part of my thing with the GA is to look at the map and and, and look at these states and people that have been sort of um, area code or zip code uh, deficient uh, when it comes to, to these leagues. And they've been either overlooked or haven't had the ac- uh, access or uh, ability to to, to join um, I, I think that uh, there are there are plenty of opportunities for players at the end of the day it's on the player if you're good enough someone will find you um, you know it's Bethany Balser from the O.L. Reign right now who played in a tiny club in Michigan and went to an NAI school and then became the rookie of the year in the league last year for a professional woman uh, yeah. and so a lot of times it's how you make your own opportunities and so Uh, it's less about trying to get on the team that wins the most or the team that you feel is going to show at the showcase the most. It's the, it's honing your own skills and continuing to put yourself um, in a position to be your best. And I I always feel that it's not the amount of money you plop down or the crest that you're wearing or the league you belong to. It's, it's what you personally do to to go after what it is you want in the game. And um, so uh, I, I think that as again when you talk about club players as paying customers, I think players in their own pathway have to make sure that they are uh, players not parents uh, parents can support but players should be adamant about um, about their own development and if they don't feel like they are uh, you know, learning the things they should learn, how do they, how, do they, how do they learn them? Is it going out on their own? Is it um, finding camps or other ways to put themselves in different environments where they can be exposed to something different? Is it on their own when people aren't watching, going and playing with, with boys because it's quicker, faster, and they have to make better decisions, and then they do rise to the top on their own, own club team that maybe someone hasn't noticed before? There's plenty of outlier stories in the game of soccer where uh, I think those are the great stories where where people's pathway hasn't been the pathway that other people think is the best way. And um, so I, I think it's it's a personal journey that that kids have to realize they they need to take responsibility for if they want to get where they want to go.
0: hmm Yeah for sure. Where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, and I Tristan believe, I if you're, that. Yeah, if Tristan if you're listening to this uh, check out the episode I did with Jay Demerit he literally went to europe and was knocking on doors of clubs just to get trials and eventually made it to Watford in the uh, english premier league so yeah definitely where there's a will there's a way
1: there is and and we talk a lot of times it's sort of a cliche but we talk about you know are you a soccer player or just someone who plays soccer and if it's if it is in you and it is something that you have a deep burning passion for uh you're going to find a way and it's it's a game where size doesn't matter. <laughs> it, mm-hmm. You know, you could be short, you could be tall you could be like, it, it, like soccer really is a game for everybody. And, um, and, and you can, you can, you can find a way, uh, if you've got the passion to, to forge your own path. And, at, you know, you, you have to have the ability at some point in time to reach the highest levels, but, it, you know, go down trying <laughs> is my, it yeah. was always my thing. If you love it that much, um, go down trying. And, and that's, that's on you, not on
0: someone else. Absolutely. Great advice. So what kind of advice, final question here, what kind of advice would you have for parents who are raising athletes today?
1: Uh, teach them ownership. Yeah. You're raising athletes, teach, teach them ownership, teach them balance as much as you can in the, the weird world of structured youth sports. Um, Let them do other things as long and as much as they possibly can, uh, you know, and and, and encourage it uh, as opposed to, you know, making them specialize at such a young age that it's all they know. Uh, I've seen more often than not, you know, that that one, it leads to burnout. And two, I don't think in the game of soccer, I don't think it makes them the best player that they can be um, if they're not adept at other things. Um, you know, I, I think just honing different, uh, you know, parts of your brain and muscle memory is, is something that's, that's important in, in youth development. So, um, but be supportive, but teach them ownership of their own path in anything. I think that's, uh, you know, as I'm a parent and I, I think it's the, it's the hardest thing to do is to is to stand back and watch your kids fail because you feel like it's an extension of you, but it's the best mm-hmm. lesson you can teach them is to teach them how to, how to use failure as, as fuel for, for better. And, um, and just, you know, you'll have your own little <laughs> sad moment in the closet by yourself and then come, <laughs> come back, out, come back out and put on a good face for them. Oh, uh, but, right. but let them pick themselves up and, and go for it again. And just, you know, be their, be their biggest fan, but let it be theirs.
0: Mm, Beautiful. Amazing advice there. Leslie, thank you so much for your time today. Wish you best luck with your new role as commissioner of the GA. Stay safe up in Seattle. And I expect a signed copy of your book whenever you finish that.
1: It is coming your way, Gabe. And uh, it's great to reconnect with you after all these years. And uh, I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you.
0: So what were your biggest takeaways? Now, when I listen to the interviews, after I record them, I take notes and write down things that really strike me, and I kept writing stuff. I found myself during this listening to this interview with Leslie, I kept writing stuff. It's like, oh my God, that's great, that's great, that's great, that's great, and and I was going to talk about so many of them, but then it was like it kept getting better and better for me, and then even until the very last minute when she spoke about letting your child fail. And that is what really ended up striking me the most. And that's something that comes up in a lot of the workshops that I do. And it comes up in a lot of the sessions that I do with my private clients who are parents of athletes and just parents in general. And that is a really difficult topic. And as Leslie mentioned perfectly, a lot of parents view their child's failure as a reflection on them. And it absolutely isn't. Right? It is essentially an experience people decide to label it as failures and of course that's their choice but is that really the healthiest way now what I often tell the parents in either my workshops or my sessions is I say think about your life and when you didn't succeed at something because I don't like to call them failures I, I like to call them learning experiences but I'll say when did you learn the most? Did you learn the most from victories and successes or when you lost or when you didn't achieve something you wanted to do? And the parents sit and they think about it and they remember, oh yeah, like failing or quote unquote failing is actually an amazing time for growth and to develop and get better. I know from my personal life that When I didn't achieve something, I learned the most from it, and I was really driven to actually try and conquer what I didn't achieve and what I wanted to achieve. It gave me the extra motivational push if it was really that important to me. Some things just aren't, and it's the same. I'm sure that went for you and the same for your child, and the same thing goes for me as a coach, and I'm sure Leslie as well. My teams got better when we actually lost games. Because I was able to look and say, okay, where do we need to get stronger? And then you fix the issue or issues, and then your team ends up getting stronger. So a lot of parents don't feel comfortable with their child, quote-unquote, failing. And again, they usually do that because it, they feel as if it's a reflection on them and their parenting. And in my work, and I've talked about this in several of my other episodes, Our stress levels, any kind of negative emotion that we're having, any shame, any doubt, any fear comes from three different possibilities. Either feeling as if we have a lack of control, feeling as if we lack or could lack security like job, health, housing, other material objects, or a fear of not having approval. And when we start to compare ourselves, that fear is enhanced. When we start to compare our children to other children, that fear is enhanced. And when we start to compare our parenting to other parents, our fear is enhanced. When we start to compare ourselves to this ideal image we have of ourselves, then the fear is enhanced as well, along with a lot of other uncomfortable emotions. So really, in order to counter that, it is important to essentially throw away this idea that we need to seek approval in, from other people, from outside sources. All the approval you need is already inside of you. Everything else is just a thought, a belief, an illusion that other people's approval of us makes us complete and makes us happy. And it's just absolutely not true. It's a complete illusion. It's the outside-in illusion. That outside sources complete us, make us feel whole, when it's really our thinking that does. And that is the inside-out reality. And that's something that I always like to work with with my clients. And I love doing it. I love pointing them that direction. As always, I'm happy to help you do it as well. You can always reach out to me, Gabe, at a Clear Mind. Dot com or go to my website, aclearmind.com. Now, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Leslie as much as I did. If you did enjoy it, I ask that you please go to whatever platform you're listening to and rate the podcast. If you can leave a review about it to review it on Apple Podcast, you just scroll down past the list of episodes. It should be at the bottom to be able to rate and review. And, of course, subscribe to it so you don't miss any other episodes and to share it with others so that they can listen to stories like this one, this amazing one with Leslie Gallimore, new commissioner of the Girls Academy and former head coach at University of Washington. Again, I'm always here for you. Just reach out gabeataclearmind.com. And as always, much love to you and many blessings.